House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Today we're, we're kind of going into a different side of, of crime and forensics and, and something we don't cover that often. And because of the recent uh, plane crash and all of the... Um, let's say, all of the different uh, letters, emails, and uh, texts that we have been getting uh, on the last Supermax, actually two of them, um, it, it first got me to thinking, you know, who who does the job of going in and cleaning up? Like, what, what happens when a plane crashes, and what happens to everything, and who does it? And it's always made me wonder. And because of some of the conspiracy theories out there and the totally logical uh, things, claims that I've been seeing, I, I, I wanted to find out. And I did. And uh, a group called Kenyan International Emergency Services is who I found. And they've done so many, so many of the cleanups from so many of these different tragedies um, that they were that was perfect, and I uh, found uh, someone from that company, and he also was in an article. Um, and so after reading that, he was our man. So uh, here he is. He's from the UK. Uh, his name is called Robert Jensen. Thank you for being here, Rob. Oh, you're welcome, Al. And uh, just clarification, I'm an American, and <laughs> I live in the U.K. sometimes. I am calling you from the U.K. today, but I'm, I'm from uh, originally from California. A beautiful state. <laughs> That's a great state, as I call it. <laughs> well, in the U.K., U.K.'s great, hey? I mean, it's sure, it's, it's got its own, uh, it's got its own unique feel to it that, that, that you can't get anywhere else. It's, it's, it's quite nice. It is. Um, I'm here because our, the company that, that I own, Kenyon, started in 1906 in the United Kingdom, believe it or not. So um, we still do a lot of business out of here, so I divide my time between here and our, our main U.S. office. So let's let's start through with the company first. Um, so you said it started in 1906, I believe. What? So we weren't having the big plane crashes and all that back then. What was the initial uh, concept of the company? company? Well, it started from a, a very prominent English funeral home that uh, it's still in business today. It's a separate business than the, um, the emergency services side. And the first mass fatality was actually a rail accident. A great Salisbury railway disaster of 1906 was the uh, boat train. People from London would take the train down to um, Southampton to, to catch the, the cruise liners, and there was a train accident. So the the Metropolitan Police asked the Kenyans, as they were called, to respond. And since 1906 on, um, probably to the mid-90s, responded for a lot of different events, wartime, um, ship sinkings, uh, Piper Alpha, the oil rig, Pan Am, uh, most of the big events. The Kenyans would often respond and work. And the company was acquired by an American company in 1996 and moved to the U.S. and then I am. I joined in 98 and took it private in 2007. So now when we when we move up into the things like so the plane crashes um, 
one of the biggest things to start with is, um, you know, the, the, some of the letters that we were getting as a station. And um, people sending us notes saying, hey, uh, the plane, is that last one's really in Nairobi and it didn't crash. And uh, how come there's pictures of the crash and it's just a dirt field and there's nothing there. There's no people. There's nothing left. That can't be. It's impossible. It's staged. It's a fake uh, false flag, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, it, so can you explain what goes on during a crash? Like, why why does it end up like that? Uh, yeah, that, that's a, that is, and I say sadly, because uh, conspiracy theories often can, can really harm family members. And when you have a loss, the goal is, is zero. You can't make it better because you can't uninjure people. You can't bring back the dead. The best you can do as a system is not make it worse for the survivors, the family, you know, for our survivors or the families. And so we, we do a couple things or, or best practice is a couple things. You have a family assistance program and I, I can go more into that later if you have questions about that. From the forensic standpoint and, and if you go back in history, um, you look at United Flight 93, a, a crash scene I also attended, and you had some of the same comments that there's no aircraft, that airplanes just don't disappear, and there would be, and you know, intact remains. Well, airplanes do disappear. They don't disappear into thin air. They disappear into smaller pieces. Into when you look at the force of an impact, when an aircraft hitting anywhere from several hundred miles um, per hour to even um, you know, the, the subsonic, which some crashes have, uh, the aircrafts are, are shattered into millions of pieces. Now, the bigger pieces, such as the engines or some of the landing gear, survive, but once you're on the site, you won't typically see pictures of that because they're not great pictures for the media. And unfortunately, as the aircraft is impacts and, and goes into, you know, hundreds of thousands of pieces or millions of pieces, the deceased, the remains, the, the people on board the aircraft, and, and I use terms like deceased and remains, but, but we aren't talking about human beings who had families and had meaning. Unfortunately, there's gross fragmentation. So quite a lot of airplane crashes that we work at where there is a an impact from any type of altitude and an impact with speed, there is not a body that looks like you and I look today, there are only fragmented pieces. And very fortunately, the media has learned from past mistakes about those are not pictures they show um, because it's it's disrespectful to the dead, it's harmful to the survivors and the families. So I guarantee you there was an Ethiopian Flight 302. It absolutely did crash. And unfortunately, a large number of human beings lost their life. And it's up to the system now to try to do the best it can to recover and identify those human remains. Now there's best practice, and I would would sadly say I don't think that's being done here in Ethiopia uh, for lots of different reasons. Um, there are no new lessons to learn, and, and there is a way to do stuff. I just, uh, for whatever reason, they're choosing not to do it. But there, there was a plane crash, and there are human remains. Now, Robert, that also happened. Uh, of course, there was tons of news media. That also happened with the crash of 9-11 at the Pentagon. 
It, it did, and in and I actually went to all three locations. Um, I I left our office on the the morning of the eleventh uh, en route and stopped in Washington, then set up the morgue in Pennsylvania, and then put a team in New York for almost eighteen months. Um, yeah, the, the, when a plane hits a building, um, there's substantial damage to the aircraft and to the building, and of course to the human beings in the building and on board the aircraft. And where people might have this expectation that I'm going to see a large section of the aircraft, or if I dig in the ground, I'm going to find a large piece of the aircraft. It it doesn't. The same thing with water recoveries. Unless the plane has attempted to land on the water, like the Air New Guinea crash, where the the plane wasn't attempting to land, but but it, it landed on the water short of the runway, stayed relatively intact, and then sank. But a plane hitting the water at high speed... Um, does the same as on land. It disintegrates and breaks up. It just has the action of the current to disperse the wreckage. Wow. So, what, so <laughs> without, I know because we don't want to get too, well, we can get a little bit, but I, I just, one of the biggest complaints we had was, um, like someone would send me a picture of, uh, from CNN and one or, or one of the other networks, and it would have a picture of uh, a running shoe that looks pretty much intact, and uh, it would be laying beside the Eth- Ethiopian crash site, and and the comments are, oh, I guess a running shoe doesn't burn at fifteen thousand degrees. Like the insinuation is, okay, well, how come, how come there's uh, pieces around, but no action? There's no legs. There's no skulls. There's no. Um, so why does the body does it liquefy and then just sort of turn into remains like what what are we left with well so it depending on what happens in in each specific case and i don't mean cases in the crash i mean cases in the human remains some are going to be damaged by fire how much fire depends on what is is burning is it is it tissue and bone is it just tissue is it fat and bone a shoe is going to always stand out and be photographed because the media loves to photograph shoes. And, and to me, they're always they're always shoes. There's shoes and bombings. There's, I always find shoes. And the first lesson I learned was you always check the shoe because you may often find human remains in the shoe that are survived. They've just become detached. And the shoe will, like other things, if you look at pictures, you'll see papers, you'll see the most innocuous things that you wouldn't imagine would survive. And there's no rhyme or reason why a one particular shoe flies off in one direction. It just is where it is in the aircraft, how it hits, and what forces send it to a place. But a body doesn't liquefy. A body will fragment, and there are parts of the body that are soft. There are parts of the body, like bones, that are hard. There are parts that are surgical. We, you know, we find surgical artifacts from hip replacements and you may even find one intact body i've had a crash where i had one intact body and 120 some non-intact bodies and other than it's the way the body responded to the inside of the aircraft when the impact occurred so it's it's not a it's not a um, mystery it's just it's physics sadly so so what is it that you actually get now, like for instance, with the Ethiopian or when, when the other ones, when there's absolutely no r- real substance 
that looks like a body or no substance that look like full particles. What kind so, of remains are there? Yeah. So how we maybe I describe the process is, is, is a simpler way to answer. So I'll give you an example. We had a crash in um, in, in Namibia back in 2013. Thirty three people on board. We recovered over 900 fragment, fragmented remains. And so when we set up a morgue, we each each part that's recovered that again can be something such as a torso, it could be dentition, a, a part of a jaw with teeth, it can be fingers with a fingerprint, it can be a, a piece of tissue, it can be a, a you know a piece of a, of a, a an aorta, a piece of lung, it, it just a piece of tissue. Everything comes into a morgue. We look at it. We triage it to see if that it's going to have identification value. Um, unlike the CSI effect, which a lot of people think that you know this is like TV, not every tissue is going to have usable DNA for identification. We then look to see if there's other things, such as something like again a, a surgical part. If there's a fingerprint, we'll take a fingerprint. If it's a tooth or dentition, we will try to chart the the jaw or whatever part of the section and we build a picture of this this piece of human remains that can be a small piece or a large piece and and that picture we call the post-mortem examination and at the same time that someone is dealing with that there should be a team of people that are going out to interview the living family members and collecting familial DNA references and finding out if perhaps the person who was deceased actually had a DNA profile. Like I was in the Army, so my DNA sits in, I think, Maryland somewhere, um, you know, if it's ever needed to, to be provided. And that is called the anti-mortem records. And eventually those records are con- are joined up in the system for an identification committee or people to value and say, okay, we have this this partial hand. And on it were fingerprints that matched Robert Jensen, Robert A. Jensen. So there, I'm, I am now identified. But because of the fragmentation, it's likely I'll be identified several times. And we had an incident where one person was identified 289 times. So part of it then going it's very important to go to the families to to ask them how much they want to be involved in this because for some families when the plane crashed they'll be done they won't want to know anything they'll want you the system to take care of the disposition of the bodies other families will want to know when there's an identification made take possession even if that's a small fragment have a funeral and know nothing else others will say tell me each and every time and finally some families will say I don't want to know anything till the end of the process and then I'll have my funeral for families in a plane crash like this the positive identification is hugely important because it allows them an opportunity to start to make decisions if I'm flying in a plane and my plane disappears or crashes and I fly all the time and my husband is sitting at home and somebody says, you know, to, to my husband Brandon, hey, Robert's plane's crashed. There's no survivors. He'll react, but there's not much he can do. He can't plan a funeral, can't really do anything. There's not a death certificate, which is another process. And it will be real, but it won't be real for a lot of people. 
But when I'm identified, and that can be six months it took for German Wings, I am Mozambique that we were also involved in, I think six to eight months. If I were guessing for Ethiopia, given the system they're using, I would think it's probably going to be closer to a year or more. Then somebody should notify them and said, we've made a positive identification. At that point, it's up to the family to decide how they want to proceed, but the system will force them to make a decision because there will be a human remains. And it will probably be fragments of what's left. could be from one to, again, 289 is the example I use. And when we return those to a family, we always make sure the family understands questions they're asking and that they're answered. And you don't do things like put, you know, sandbags in a casket to make it appear like there's a body. You don't mislead families. You have to tell them initially. And I'll give you an example. In fact, I got an email from a family member who I'd spoken to in, in the German Wings crash from Canada who came to the Family Assistance Center we did in France. And the French president had, within a week of the crash, announced to everyone that they'd had positive DNA for 150 people, and 150 people were on board the plane. So the family members were assuming that everyone was identified, and they, within a week of the crash, would have bodies to go home. No. There was a unique DNA profile from 150. There were 150 unique DNA profiles generated from the crash site. It was cold. There was no fire. The French did an excellent job. They collected the remains quickly, and they profiled them and got good profiles. But they still hadn't collected because, of course, that takes longer, all the references from the families and interview families. And until those matches are made, that profile is just a series of letters and numbers. It's not a – or letters. It's not a name. It's a, it's a loci, a marker that's used to establish identification. And so I got up at the Family Assistance Center, and I, I tell families that I'm going to have a very direct briefing today about the realities of the high-speed impact and what that means for identification and repatriation. And, and some of the families, you may not want to sit here. You may not want to be part of this, so I'll pause to let you leave. And then I go through the process, and I explain, just like I explained now, that it was a high-speed impact. There are no human remains. There are fragments. And this is likely going to take months. And people are afraid to do that, but I think you have to do that because it, it prepares families. So this family member from Canada emailed me after the Ethiopian crash and said, look, we, you don't know what that means to us. It was very helpful. And the worst day of my life was when I was called to tell my family members in German wings. The second worst day of my life was when I was told my best friend was on the Ethiopian flight, knowing what they're going to go through. He said, but what made a difference is people who explained to us what to expect. So it's really important when there's plane crashes to, to set expectations. And now there's so much on social media. There's, there's examples from the Ethiopian crash of pictures of people panicking in a plane that's supposedly Ethiopian. But look at the film. It shows a wide-body aircraft. The Ethiopian plane is a narrow-body aircraft. Um, there's a special place in a really hot area for people who do that, but unfortunately the, the web doesn't have that self-regulation yet. Yeah, I, I've I, gone I, on quite a bit. Yeah, and I find that the hardest uh, because we deal with this stuff all the time. 
you know, um, the whole we're fake news and anything, that we're always some sort of a conspiracy. We get asked if we get checks from the government, and I get asked all sorts of stuff. And it's like, no, I just I look for things that are sourced. I look for things. A lot of times when I was being thrown these pictures and fake stuff through the Internet about the Ethiopian crash, it, it, uh, my answer has always been to them, listen, if you're sick, you go see a doctor. If you have a question about what's left at the crash, go find someone that deals with crashes and cleaning up of the crash. Like, uh, go to a person that does the job. If they have questions, and then, it, then it, it might be feasible. It might make sense to follow up. But don't, don't just uh, get a YouTube from Joe Blow. Uh. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But the challenge is, who do people go to? Because they're so, when everyone says there's a plane crash and everyone thinks that the NTSB is in charge, it, especially in the United States, well, in many countries, there's not a single agency that is, is in charge. The NTSB is not in charge of a plane crash. They're in charge of the investigation unless it's criminal. But it could fall to the local coroner, medical examiner, and those skills and, and personalities and abilities vary widely across the U.S. Um, so there's there's not a single place to go to, and that's why when you look at the family assistance law that came into effect in the United States, um, it was passed shortly after the TWA crash in 1996, but really started with the atrocious treatment of families in 1994 at the U.S. Air 427 crash. And, and the law said there has to be some type of process to take care of the survivors, the families. They are important. The investigation is important, but the living is much more important. And, and there aren't I mean, it's a good thing there aren't a lot of Kenyans in the world, and it's a good thing there aren't a lot of me's. Um, you don't want my memories. I've been to, to more plane crashes and um, bombings. I was at a plane crash three weeks ago. Um, and so um, you don't don't want to do what I do, and it's a good thing there aren't a lot of me because it means that we don't need a lot. But it's a bad thing in that there's not the breadth of experience that covers the different areas to walk people through or talk to people and say, here's kind of what to expect. This is, is not an overnight process. This isn't going to go away. There's some really hard information that, that you should be told as a family member, and you're going to have to make a decision. You're not going to like what I have to tell you, and if you don't want me to tell you, I won't, but most people do. How do, how do you find yourself? Um, dealing with uh, such um, a, a grief and such a job of of, of having to uh, talk to people um, surrounding such uh, awful circumstances. Well, I, I you know, I'm, I'm not in servitude. I didn't, you know, wasn't drafted into this work. It's what I did in the army. I was a policeman in college. Um, it's just what I do and. Um, I, I mean, I can't again. I can't help the deceased because I can't bring them back. I can try to make sure that they have dignity and respect, and that they have a name, a, a basic human right. Um, my goal is to help the survivors, and it's, it's not a hard job. It's just being truthful and and helping them walk through what is um, 
what I call one of the worst periods in life. I, I don't use the word closure because I, I don't necessarily think people close off those chapters in, in life. It's not like a you know a book or a door you close. I, a lot of people we use the word transition. Um, it's for the living. It's going from what was normal to what will be normal, and not everyone makes that journey successfully. Um, for responders, people like me, yeah, we every time we go, we're probably a little bit different, and, and one day I'll probably pay the price. I, I'm just lucky I haven't gotten there yet. How do you, how do you feel about uh, plane travel? Do you think it's safe? Yeah, I fly all, I, I have a little bit different expectation about life, I think, than others because, again, I have been to – I don't even count the number of plane crashes anymore, but um, bombings, um, mass graves from war, um, uh, maritime rail disasters, um, earthquakes, uh, did the tsunami. I two, I've done two events that have killed a quarter of a million people. Um, the Haitian earthquake and the Boxing Day tsunami. Um, so I, I don't worry about things in life I can't control. There's a lot of small stuff that I see people worry about, and I try not to let those things bother me. When somebody says there's a mistake, I ask how many people were killed. If none, then to me it's not a mistake. It's not the end of the world. And um, planes are – we are – unfortunately going to continue to have plane crashes because planes are built by humans, they're flown by humans, and they're maintained by humans. And humans make mistakes, just like we're going to continue to have natural disasters. And we can be very good with security and prevention, but the bad guys only have to get it right once. And the good guys have to get it right every time, and that's probably not going to happen. So um, life didn't come risk-free. The the challenge is to live a life well and and to make sure that when your time comes, because it does come for everyone, is that you, you don't hopefully have regrets and you've done everything to prepare yourself. The one thing that amazes me is when I have to sit with families who now have a whole bunch of family issues because no one quite understands what was what would the dead person have wanted for the family because they didn't leave a will, they didn't leave directions. And that's the one that that is frankly one thing I will never understand. But death is scary to people. Robert, get, getting back to the families, if you don't mind, I, oh, I have I uh, I can see, and, and this may not be the case, but I can see there may be times where perhaps a family doesn't really want to deal with this situation, and and maybe really don't want to claim the remains. Does that happen? Oh, absolutely. So we've had families, when we sit with them to walk through the process, they'll say, you know, I, I love my dad. My dad died what he loved doing, and so I, I don't ever want to know if there's a recovery or if there's an identification. And um, and to me, it's done. So what we do is, because the disposition of a human body is, is a very bureaucratic process, as you can imagine, we get the documents when when and if and a lot of times we'll have the recovery and the identification we'll then bury the person in an unmarked grave or with just a, a very plain headstone and we keep those records because it's not unusual or unheard of for 20 years later for a family member to come back and say you know my my mom wasn't wasn't really able to deal with the loss of my grandfather or the loss of her husband and so she never did anything, but I'd like to know where my dad is buried. Can you tell me? And then we can go through the records and um, help 
find the location or just, you know, change the grave or put a headstone. Um, so, yes, every, there's no wrong answer. Every family is different in how they deal with loss and how they memorialize it and choose disposition of the loved ones. Well, one other thing I was going to talk about was um, not only is the, the uh, locating and um, the the cleanup, so to speak, the um, retrieval of, of possessions and people and things, um, in certain areas, um, I would imagine it can be um, a plane that's landed in a hostile area or something that's happened in an area that they're not really happy to see you. Um, how do you guys deal with that, or what precautions do you take? Well, so we've we've done war zone recovery, so obviously you want to take the appropriate security. You have post-conflict where it's taken a while to get to the crash site, and then we want to talk to the local. Our, our goal is we always talk to the local people, the local, uh, whether it's a village elder, tribal chief, a warlord, and our approach is we're not here with an agenda. We're here with a humanitarian mission to recover a body and return it to the family. And we're really good at killing each other in the world, but the one thing that is fairly universal is is not always, but mostly is somewhat the respect for the dead. I mean, there's obviously horrible examples where that doesn't happen, but if you can talk to people and explain what you're doing in your goal, then it's often a little bit easier to get cooperation. But sometimes it can take a little bit of time because you have to work through the diplomatic or trying to identify who that person with the authority is that may not be recognized. And that's harder for the families because they have to wait. Um, but the goal is that you can at least give an answer. We, we had two crashes in Angola back in 99, the planes that were shot down a week apart in 99 and 2000, and we weren't able to access those till 2003, but we were able to bring back fragmented remains that we ran DNA on, get identification, and some of those family members were of the belief that their loved ones had parachuted or survived the crash and been captured by the UNITA rebels and held and not ever turned over during the peace process. And so we were able to tell them, no, they didn't survive the crash um, because of the fragmentation of the, the excavation of the crash site. And, and not give them a good answer, but to give them an answer and to give them some information so they would know. Because the not knowing is very difficult for a lot of family members. And I think that's what's going to be hard in Ethiopia if they don't do a proper identification. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever feel threatened when you're out there? Um, no, um, but I've, I've spent some time in some unpleasant areas, so again, I'm probably not the best person to answer. I've had a couple of hotels blown up, but, you know, you don't take it personally. Um, I... <laughs> Just another day. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it, it, you know, it's, it's again, different, different life. Um... No, we, we use security and we don't bing people. So, for example, we did the bombing of the UN headquarters in Baghdad, the Canal Head Hotel that was, you know, attacked and blown up, killing the um, um, the UN staff, the, the representative of the, um, I think it was Kofi Annan was the Secretary General at the time, and Sergio DeMello and his team. Uh, so you're in a hostile area, so we don't set up a family assistance center in Iraq. We keep a very small team there, and then we 
did most of the work either on the military bases or in Jordan and moved all the families to Jordan so we could, you know, do the return of the, the remains. So you, you have to take certain precautions when you're in, in war zones. Um, we started the project to do the mass graves for the Balkans back in 1999 um, to help set up a program that's now become the International Commission on Missing Persons to do the mass graves. Now, in that case, you have mass graves in all three countries from all three warring parties. So you have to sit with each group, and each group will look you in the face and tell you they're the victim, and they're not responsible. It's always the other two parties. But your job isn't to decide fault. Your job is can we start disinterring the mass graves, can we start putting the bodies back together, so to speak, because some of them were buried in multiple graves, and start the identification in the hopes that maybe at least 20,000 missing persons will be able to give answers to 17 or 18,000 families so that perhaps there'll be a better chance for peace to last. Yeah, I think I'd still be worried about uh, being captured and held for ransom or something in, in certain places. Uh, yeah, well, that's why you use security. I, I think I'm more the type that they would... Um, you know, my family would charge money to um, to take me back. So <laughs> <laughs> they they got the wrong one. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd probably um I, I give most kidnappers three or four days before they they want to get rid of me. Yeah, <laughs> please take them. <laughs> so the most difficult one, like what's what's the um the the type of recovery that you like. To have to, that you dislike to have to go to most, like which one is the most difficult type? You know, from earthquakes, plane crashes to uh, all of them in in one. You hear about something and you go, oh, "No, this is. I don't want to do this." I, I don't rate any of them because whether it's one person or a quarter of a million, that one person has a circle of family or friends whose life is never going to be the same and going to be hard. Um, there's all there's there's challenges in, in every one of them. I, I I think I mentioned I wrote a book back in '98 on this. It's a textbook, so it's not something you know you see in a bookstore. But for uh, forensic practitioners, one of the things I said in there is all mass fatalities are political, and they are. Governments rise and fall on them. The response to Oklahoma 9/11, the Atocha train bombings in uh, Madrid, Grenfell Tower in the United Kingdom. Nothing is ever as it seems, because what appears on the surface, there's probably a lot more to be found when you start to process the scene. So uh, there are always challenges. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine. The, um, uh, how, how long in general, what, like a, what's a rough time? Like with the Ith- Ethiopian plane crash there, how long is that process going to take? Well, so a report, and you look at Swiss Air 111, um, or or you can use Alaska 261, which is more your part of the world back in, in 2000, the, the um, MD-82 that crashed um, in, um, I want to say, January. It, yeah. That was a faster investigation. That took six months, but it took us probably, I don't know, seven months, eight months to do identification. And even then, there were four people that weren't recovered. Um, just were never identified, but we still had a mass grave because we had tissue that was unidentifiable, even though we had still missing people. 
Egypt Air 990 off the East Coast. We were probably doing identification for 16, 18 months. Um, it, it, it depends on the dynamics. Ethiopian, I would say, is a probably an 18-month process for the identification. Um, I don't know what they're doing with the personal effects. From the way I've seen pictures of the site, they're probably not doing them the way they should be done. So that's going to be harder for families because the the ability to return the personal effects is often so important, especially if there's not a remains to bury, but fragments instead. Um, the investigation at the complex one that can take two years, two and a half years. Litigation, unfortunately, will probably go on for years for families, um, depending on the, the, you know, how aggressive whatever attorneys they use, and if it's against the airline, if it's against Boeing, all the different parties. Um, so it's it's a it's going to be a very long transition period for some. I was almost on that Alaska airline back in two thousand, um, Puerto Vallarta. Yeah, Puerto Vallarta, San Francisco to um, to Seattle. Um, Eighty-eight people it was um, very sad. I spent quite a lot of time in the morgue and with the family members. Yeah, I, I well, uh, we took the next flight the next morning. <laughs> yeah, it was probably a bit different. And there was nobody on it. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, if you remember, Alaska had the um, the grand jury came out with with the um, uh, the FBI announced the grand jury and the, the maintenance investigations. But here's the thing to remember: Alaska did very well, and this is what I try to tell people when they have an accident. Families, the public, people know that accidents. Or incidents, if they're intentional or per, you know, or negligence, occur because again we're human. You're not judged by the incident because you can't undo the incident. The dead don't judge you. The living judge you, and they don't judge you on the incident. They judge you on how you respond. And if you remember, Ted Kelly flew down to Port um, to Port Wainimi, where we set up the main family, or to um, to Los Angeles, where the main family assistance center was set up. We were facing our operation in Port Wainimi. But he stood up to the families. I know that because I was standing next to him, and he apologized, and he said, I'm, I'm sorry. I, what I can focus on now is going forward, not going back. And you can see a notable difference in families when the CEO of a company stands up in front of them and says, I'm sorry, and says, here's what I can do going forward. So you as a company absolutely are in control of your fate and more importantly you're in control of how the public and how the families feel they're going to be cared for don't don't apologize don't leave your office put up the lawyers it's going to be a bad response and it's going to cost you a lot in settlements and litigation and in reputation having compensation is without question something that happens litigation is not a foregone conclusion to me litigation is an extension of rage and if you look at 9-11 the last hundred lawsuits the people that didn't take the settlement fund from the mediator many of those money was not the settlement it was an apology from the executives of the airline the airports and the security companies and it shouldn't have had to take a lawsuit to get that Robert, I, I have listened here since we've been on the on the radio show, and I, and I've read several articles uh, about you and your company, and I am extremely impressed 
with your dedication, uh, your commitment to the families. Uh, Thank you. It, it is very prevalent, and I'm very impressed with that. Uh, thank you. That's that's very kind, Stephen. Yeah, it's it, well, it's important. That's, that's what I mean to have to to deal with that grim circumstances and yet still have um, compassion like that. It's 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 uh, it's it's not always easy, and it's got to be very stressful, very trying on on someone, you know. And, uh, yeah. Well, the day you lose compassion is the day you. Uh, I, I need to do a different job. Yeah, then you run for politics. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I, well, I, I didn't say I didn't say lose, lose ethics or. Yeah. Um, <laughs> although we, we there have been some good ones in our history, I'd like to think, oh, and there there will yeah. be some good ones. I hope in the future. We just have kind of a um, yeah a, a lack of them. It seems right now. Yeah, that's how it is. You know, and that back in that '99, that Alaska crash, the. Um, uh, we were going to be on it, but we changed because we met other people in Puerto Vallarta, and I uh, and I hated flying way back then. I was scared. It yeah, probably didn't help you. No, in fact, I, uh, that was it. I didn't want to go back. And actually, the 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 my partner ended up marrying later, but he he ended up telling me, "Listen, what are the chances of the same plane crashing from the same city to the same place, right at run right after the other?" And after Very about rare. ten cocktails <laughs> and some good good uh, uh, pills, I did it. Yeah, well, here's here's a, a little vignette I'll leave you with. One of the bodies that we recovered in Oklahoma was a woman, and she had a high heel shoe on, and she had a tennis shoe on. And so that's not normal that you wear different shoes. And then you realize that the bomb went off just a few minutes after 9 o'clock, and you... You know, if anyone's who, you know, friends that work in offices, a lot of women wear tennis shoes or more comfortable shoes to the office. They keep a pair of high heels or, you know, shoes that I don't know how people wear, but women do wear them, um, by their desk, and then they change. So she was bent over at her desk changing her shoe. She had gotten one shoe on and had not changed the other shoe when the bomb went off. And had she been three minutes late that day she'd been in the stairwell where there were survivors or called in sick or car malfunctioned she wouldn't have been on my table in the morgue she didn't do anything wrong it just was her time and sometimes there's nothing you can do to control it so you can again choose not to do stuff and some people do or you can realize that there's millions of journeys that are completed very safely every day. And like I said, I get on a plane to go to a plane crash without, without a second thought. Yeah, yeah. It's it's still, um, as they say, safer than driving. Absolutely. So, you know. So do you plan on sticking with this career um, till you retire? Well, I've... Uh, um, I've, I've I, I have hired a, a replacement for myself you know, on the company. You can't you can't quit um, or get fired. I've tried multiple times, but um, <laughs> always in the back. Um, what I'm trying to do now more is is step back and make sure that these the experiences transition to newer people to do more writing, to do more talking and training, 
so that people are better prepared um, and and have the company where maybe I don't have to to be as involved day to day. Um, and as a, I'll still go to events because whether it's one person or a hundred, it's big for the company, our client, and um, and pass over to the next generation. I said the company's one hundred and. 13 years old now and I would like it to be around for next 113 years but I'd like it to do better so I'll still be here but I'll, I'd like to uh, spend more time in the uh, the Florida house in Key West yeah <laughs> so now for the company if people want to uh, find out about the company if they want to help join can people just uh, apply for a job or apply to volunteer well, we, we don't take volunteers. We're, we're a for-profit private company. So um, what we do have are team members, and we have all sorts of team members, people who are uh, in the, from religious backgrounds, people who are law enforcement, technical backgrounds, people who are um, funeral directors, who are child care, who are administration, logistics. And on, if you go to our website, uh, you know, com, there's a, an area you can click to find out more about becoming a team member. And with that, then you'll get an application. We have a team member manager who will walk you through the process and see if you're like a, you know, if you are a funeral director, well, then we'll say here are the areas you can work. Or if you're a person who likes to do search and recovery or maybe a jeweler who's good at restoring jewelry. So we, we have over, what, 2,200, 2,100 team members throughout the world, um, languages, religion, cultures. And sometimes we deploy several hundred a year. Sometimes we deploy less than a hundred. And um, they're they're paid with us. Or I guess legally you call it an independent contractor. But they enter into an agreement, and then um, we call them up as we need them. Wow. Well, you know, uh, um, I never say that. Thank you for your service <laughs> to anybody. <laughs> but that's how I feel like I should say to you. You're I, welcome. I, I think that uh, what you do is amazing, and um, it's, um, you know, the, I just, I can't, you know, I write books, and I still can't come up with the right words here, um, I, but it, it's amazing uh, what you do and how you dedicate your, your life to doing this, and the bottom line is you're out there risking yourself, and you're helping other people to... Um, as you say, not resolve, but perhaps uh, move on. Yeah, yeah transition. Get, get yeah. to their new normal. And, and I think that's amazing. And, and uh, I really appreciate that, that there's people like you out there. And uh, uh, hats off to you. Um, uh, again, I, that's, that's all I can say. Um, any, any 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 last words is in the fact of is there any contact information or anything that you want to give out for yourself or um, anything that you need any help in? Uh, 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 no, thank you. I, I just if people are curious or have questions, all our contact information is on the website. Um, it's the easiest way to get a get a hold of us or get a hold of me. Um, and uh, it. it at the end of the day, I mean, I really appreciate your comments. Very kind, but but it's it's really not about me or, or us. We get to go home. It's about taking care of those people because for them, that's that's going to be for people who suffer the loss. It's it's hard, and, and the goal is to make it about them. 
Yeah. But that's that's sort of why I, 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 I see things like that in people, and I think that's what's uh, special. That's what's important is when people do that without thinking of themselves. And uh, we need more of that, you know. So that's kind of why I... That's why I don't normally compliment too many people. I'm normally nasty. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for not being nasty. <laughs> I'm, normally, I'm normally the mean guy. But when I see people do things selflessly like that and, and they dedicate their life or even a part of their life to uh, making things better for others, and it's not for glory and they're not trying to be, you know, idolized and you don't have two million followers on Instagram that you're showing yourself off to, you know, new lipsticks, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't uh, think I'd, I'd be good with lipstick. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I think that's great, and we appreciate you here, and we thank you for taking the time um, uh, to come on, and, um, and uh, we're glad you're out there. Well, thank you very much, and, um, and keep up the good work with the uh, the radio show. It's a great market you have. It's a beautiful area. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.